There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Our first guest this evening is Dr. Christos Schwitzer, director of Dublin Zoo, who has seen an overwhelming response, over one million euro in public donations in a single day. Tell us, Christoph, just how important to Dublin Zoo is that money? Yes, hello, good evening here from uh, Dublin Zoo. And first of all, thank you very much for having me on tonight. Um, this money is indeed very, very important for Dublin Zoo. Um, as you said uh, in the in the trailer, um, we are in financial difficulties. Unfortunately, uh, we are in our fifth month of closure this year. First, the three months in the spring, and then October, and now November as well. Um, and of course, we had a summer where we could only let a very limited number of guests on site um, because of social distancing regulations and making it safe for everybody to visit. So um, our finances are not looking in very good shape um, at the moment. Uh, we've had about just under half of our normal visitors in this year, and um, we are worried that we won't make it over the winter completely. Um, our, our emergency reserves are running low, and this is why we have asked the um, Irish public for help today with our Safe Dublin Zoo campaign. And how far will that money go? How much money do you need every month to simply feed the animals in Dublin Zoo and also at Photo Wildlife Park? It costs roughly a million euros a month to run Dublin Zoo and uh, about half of that, half a million euros per month, is just to care for the animals and that includes um, animal care, um, uh, it includes heating, lighting, it includes animal food, of course, and all the lot. Um, that would be uh, very similar for Photo Wildlife Park. Um, and, uh, you know, for every, every large zoo, we have 400 animals here on site, many large animals. We've got nine elephants. Each of these elephants needs about 75 euros a day to be fed. Um, and then for the entire herd, you can do the maths. Um, that uh, racks up very, very quickly. So you must be very grateful that the politicians have reacted today, that the Taoiseach has said that money will be forthcoming via the Office of Public Works. But do you think, did you have to go public to actually make sure that that support will be forthcoming? Yeah, let me say we are, we are really chuffed about the response from the Irish public. Um, it is absolutely heartwarming and, and to, to be honest, overwhelming um, to see that within a single day, um, people have donated more than 1.1 million euros and, and counting. Absolutely brilliant, the support, this outpouring of support that we've seen. And, and that also applies for the politicians. Uh, we've been um, working with, um, uh, with, the, with the government um, very constructively over a number of weeks now 
um, and uh, had a lot of support from all of our local TDs across all parties. Really, really good. Um, and um, you know, I'm very, very happy and pleased to see that government has reacted so quickly and pledged to support us. Um, you know, through a mechanism that's brilliant. Um, uh, however, you know, we haven't. We, we we are running low at the moment. I needed to do something as the director of Dublin Zoo, and this is why we are asking the public for help now today. Um, we uh, we are asking people to go to our website dublinzoo.ie, and there are a couple of different options how people can help us. Uh, we will probably still need about three to four, uh, three to four million uh, from, from government, from the taxpayer ultimately, um, to really help us out of the worst. Um, it depends a little bit on how much we can get um, through the fundraising campaign. We haven't set a specific target uh, with the campaign. I'm really, really happy and chuffed for every little donation, um, you know, and whatever people can and want to give us, that's absolutely brilliant. Christoph, just to finish briefly, I'm sure there are many people and indeed families who are missing the opportunity to go to the zoo, but are there some of the animals who also actually miss all of the human interaction of having the crowds about? Do you think, do they notice that things are different? They certainly notice things are different. They react more to us. When I walk through the zoo here, through an empty zoo, um, they come to the fence. Um, they are much more attentive to us, to our staff. Um, and um, I, I think uh, they do miss us, certainly the great apes. Um, you know, they like visitors as much as visitors like them. Um, they come and, and look at people, and at the moment they have limited opportunities. So our staff uh, and, and I myself, we are trying to do as much as we possibly can to, um, to keep them entertained. We call that enrichment, um, and, uh, and that works very well. But I think a zoo with visitors is, is much, much better than a zoo without any. Indeed it is. Christoph, thank you very much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. Billy Callagher, Fianna Fáil MEP. No government wants to be responsible for animals dying in the zoo for lack of money. But was this again a little bit of an own goal on the government's part, that you almost had to be shamed into publicly acting in support on the basis of a public campaign been announced this morning? No, I don't think so. I think uh, the public responded to the Dublin Zoo call because, I mean, it is a, you know, a strong attachment and a huge affinity uh, by the Irish people. But, I mean, uh, the government will be asked, and they were asked today in the door, and they said they would be forthcoming. So, I mean, the, the reality is... But the is negotiations have been ongoing for weeks. Dublin Zoo had to go public to actually get the commitment... Well, made publicly by the government no, I, that the OPW will help I, out. I wouldn't accept that at all, being quite truthful. I mean, the, the, they went public as well because they need support, uh, financial support. They were also in discussions with the government. And this government has been very supportive of all aspects of Irish society and the economy. And indeed, they will be supportive of Dublin Zoo as well. I can assure you that Dublin Zoo has a strong affinity with the Irish people. And as you say, no government would like to see that close. OK, Danny McCoy, let's move away from the zoo. And affinity for business, do you expect that to be extended to retailers being allowed to open perhaps before the start of December to take advantage of the Christmas business? Well, first of all, on COVID, the government's stated strategy is suppression. So that's now six weeks um, in Dublin, actually, and uh, Donegal, it's nearly nine weeks. And suppression is, you know, suppress, release. So we know there's a release coming. Uh, the question then is, can you underpin the strategy by ensuring the congregations in the run-up to Christmas in retail don't happen. And so days now matter. And so the more days that can be given for that uh, phased return, I think the better. And so you mean to spread it out effectively, is it? Absolutely. And use the time zones as well. Um, because what we want here is safe throughput 
of people. We know the scale that will go through. There's now 5 million people in Ireland past that watermark during the summer. Um, if, you, if you push this into a number of small number of weeks, uh, you're going to have public order issues. And so this is a kind of looking at the streaming of this, you give a better chance for the strategy to actually underpin it, not undermine it. What sort of response are you getting from government, though, when you put this to them? Well, I think that the government actually's instincts are to get it back. The numbers aren't going as well as we would hope. They seem to be plateauing at the moment, and that is a worry because all, all, here, all through here, the primary reason is to ensure that we get a safe return. And I think that we can still do that with bringing back retail, but then... In turn, hospitality as well will need to come back but because people are congregating already. As guaranteed, as automatic, that when this six-week period ends, that the government will bring us back off level five to a lower level. I'm not taking Anthony as automatic, but in order to keep society, which seems to have a unique affinity as humans, and we're talking about the primates earlier on, to the Christmas season, like rationally, you would try to move that. You know, when we had foot and mouth, we move St Patrick's Day. We're not going to move Christmas, and so that's Im immovable. And now, with that immovable date, we have to have some reality here that we need to actually use the time we have to, to get an opening up that's actually safe. And that means getting retail back earlier. Because, Billy, there's a report in the Irish Examiner in the last hour from Daniel McConnell saying at the Parliamentary Party meeting, Fianna Fáil tonight, that Micheál Martin warned the decisions to be taken at the end of the six-week lockdown will be difficult and that the hospitality sector will be a problem. Is it guaranteed that we will be coming out of Level 5? Well, what's guaranteed is that there will be a review of where we are. Uh, NEFIT will obviously be giving advice to the government. The government is anxious, obviously, to reduce from level five downwards. Uh, everybody wants a normalised Christmas. But, I mean, there is risk when you unwind quickly. And as Danny pointed out, there is going to be a pent-up demand. Uh, you're going to have a huge surge of people onto the streets if you open up retail without there being extended hours, without there being time zoning, for example, and things like that. Well, then you could have a very difficult period during the Christmas with high increase in COVID cases, high increase in pressures in hospitals in the new year, and we could be in very, very So are you difficult... supportive of what Danny is saying about maybe opening up earlier than the start of December yes. to accommodate that? Well, not, no, no, no. I, I, the two weeks are still very important because we have plateaued in terms of the numbers of people that are contracting COVID on a daily basis. We're around 360, 370 on a daily basis now at the moment. We want to get a lawful lot lower than that if we are to unwind the economy for the Christmas period. If so these two weeks... If we don't, does that mean we might stay at level five? Because you also said what's guaranteed is a review. That review was supposed to be now at the end of four weeks, and so now it's been put into next week. Yes, but that's because the, the numbers are plateauing. And, I mean, you know, when Neffet walk in and advise a government, they must take that advice on board. Clearly, they want to also look at other issues regarding to the economy, regarding to the societal issues, regarding to Christmas, and, and all of that. So it's to get that balance right. But there's not much point is giving a commitment in advance of we knowing where the numbers are and the numbers are worrying at the moment because we're still around 360, 370 uh, cases a day. We want to get an awful lot lower than that before we could have a what situation... What if they don't go lower? What if in two weeks' time they're still 370, 380? Do you think the government and they'll be talking about we need to keep these level five restrictions for December? Well, nobody's anxious to keep level five. Nobody wants uh, to continue with level five. I mean, the government no, and everybody else... No, of course not. But if you're at 380, 400... Well, I mean, the public have two weeks along with everybody else to try and get those numbers down. And that clearly is the obligation 
government advising, to, uh, you know, asking people to cooperate, and for us to respond over the next two weeks to get those numbers down. Everybody wants a normalised Christmas, and that includes retail as well. OK, Billy mentioned Neffet, Danny. You wrote to the Taoiseach, it was covered on the front page of the Irish Times today, and you were worried about a certain degree of kite flying by Neffet, where they seem to be putting things into the public domain to develop a certain... Well, what is it you think they're up to? Yeah, so look, Neffet has a role here. It's an advisor to the government. It's led by the chief medical officer who does a good job and gives that advice. It's, it's not the actual decisions that Neffet are taking. It's the manner in which members of Neffet, who appear on media programmes right through the length and breadth of the day, um, are offering their own advice, which is not necessarily Neffet advice, but is introduced as a Neffet member. That is a source of irritation, confusion and annoyance to the business community because these are people's livelihoods and planning that's required. We need the government to communicate with business. We need that forum. Not that we're all subjected to listening to whoever's advice on any particular day. Those are some of the most senior people in Neffet. Presumably you're talking about the likes of Philip Nolan, Ronan Grin, Tony Holland himself, aren't no, they? No, I was very clear to distinguish that. And in fact, you know, Professor Nolan's work on the modelling, I think, is exceptional. The communication there is exceptional as well. I'm talking about members of, of the medical profession that, that show up talking about what businesses should do, moving well outside their expertise in terms of what shops locations. There's no evidence. They don't have the evidence. When, they, when you look at the evidence where, where clusters are broken out, they aren't in those places. But can retailers and can pubs and restaurants really say we should be allowed to open for December? How can they say that it will be safe? Because over the summer, they show they could do that. The investment made and the incentive that they have to get their customers back and keep them safe. We saw that we had the throughput in retail. We had it also in the hospitality sectors. So we can do it. We know we can do it. But otherwise, the alternative is if there, you know, we have things restricted now and the numbers are plateauing. And we, we're seeing that people are saying it's congregations of people congregating in their homes or congregating on the streets. And so here we have an opportunity now to actually use the infrastructure that we have and have them in controlled environments in for, for hospitality. But if we're going to go that route, and we, we should in my view, is we need to give a lead time so that the suppliers of that can actually get the food and drink in place. Are you sympathetic to that, Billy? Is there not a danger, do you think, of letting the pubs and restaurants be open, even in restricted numbers, that that will, as seems to have been the case in continental Europe, spread the illness? Yeah, look, there's no doubt. I mean, if you unwind quickly um, without a plan, uh, you certainly will have a, a massive uptake or increase in COVID-19. And that is very evident because it happened in Europe. Almost the entire continent of Europe is red now uh, because they simply, you know, unwound very quickly. Uh, you had huge activity right throughout the summer and their lockdown now is, is quite severe across Europe. So if, if we are and we hope we can unwind, it has to be planned. Uh, there has to be a huge engagement with, with the business community, with the hospitality sector and to ensure there's proper compliance. And I also think that we have to engage more in testing as well. I think we have to introduce antigen testing. I think we have to be very, very clear around, you know, isolating um, incidents quickly and getting in there quickly. Uh, and I just think that just using the PCR method without the antigen is an issue that is causing a, a difficulty. The Taoiseach today is saying that the Irish public health authorities are not convinced about uh, the efficacy of rapid testing and antigen testing. Yes, if it were using it on its own, uh, I would have concerns too. But um, the European um, uh, Commission is quite clear and uh, the, 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 the authorities in Europe are quite clear that if it is used along with the PCR, 
uh, and for uh, flash outbreaks, it can be effective because you get a quick turnaround and you can test a number of times and get a result back very, very quickly. Whereas with the PCR, you're waiting for a longer period of time and it is more expensive. Yeah, but should we really be encouraging people to come into the country over the Christmas period or indeed people living here to return home to continental Europe for Christmas and come back in? Surely we should take advantage of our island nation status and try and restrict flights in any circumstances. Yes, but if, you are, if you're not restricting flights, people are coming in and not being tested. So, I mean, that's the worst of both worlds. I mean, the situation should be that if people are coming in, that there should be some way of having them tested in advance of them coming in. Uh, and that's something I, I, I've supported for a long time. I just can't understand that if we are expecting people to quarantine for 14 days and they're coming here for six days for a holiday, it is quite evident they're not quarantining. So there should be a situation whereby they can test uh, before they arrive and also have a test but there are also mixed messages from government. We had Leo Varadkar last week advising people not to book the flights home yet. You had Stephen Donnelly yesterday saying, if you need to travel, well, follow the traffic light system. Yes, and the traffic light system is quite clear. I mean, the guidance is there, but the situation is that most of Europe is red. So um, that, that means that there will be very little uh, travel to and from Europe uh, in, the sh in the short term. But what I'm saying is people are still entitled to come from red zones, but there should be a testing facility available, and the PCR is the most accurate, the efficacy is higher in that, but the antigen testing, testing would also, in my view, have an impact. And, you know, the European Commission is quite clear on that, and the European uh, Centre for, for uh, Diseases is also saying that it has a role to play as well. Danny, is there a longer-term interest in aviation that needs to be taken here, that we're going to need tourists in the future, we're going to need people coming to our universities, whatever, that we may need to keep aviation open, even if the public health reaction is, is to stop flights? Yeah, I think that's, that is the case. We're an island nation, a globalised nation, and there's a lot of assets here that are controlled by others who need to get to see their assets. But likewise, Irish businesses today are hampered by not being able to meet their customers in Europe who have other routes. They don't need to fly to see their customers on the mainland, whereas we're an island. Uh, so, you know, that's one aspect. And again, about Christmas, it's not just about Irish people coming home. It's about the workers that are here in Ireland who'd like to go to their homesteads as well, and will they be able to get back into the workplace um, after this, you know, so and lots, lots of people who are uh, immigrants here actually work in jobs that actually physically required. You can't phone it in um, like many Irish can do in terms of the office nature that is very significant. And that's the, the other piece. Office workers need to know what the plan is for the new year as well. Can you give us something positive to look forward to? I mean, is it possible, like when we thought a decade ago when the country was banjaxed by the financial crisis, that we would never recover? Do you see the potential for the Irish economy recovering quickly if there is a successful vaccine? I, I, I'm absolutely certain it'll recover quickly because the suppression is not is, is, is just that. It is a suppression. Like the, the first item... The one million, which is great to the zoo, that's probably about the size of, of the Live Aid contribution from Ireland back in 1985, just popped out in a day here. The level of savings and the level of pent-up demand in the economy is enormous, and we've seen the investment over the last number of years. If we get a kind of placebo effect, even from antigen testing and PCR, never mind the arrival of the vaccine, I would anticipate the 2021 will be an incredibly strong year but we have to do it in a controlled and safe way. And for confidence for business, we need that engagement, that we be treated like adults and not waiting, I'll be back next week to tell you about it. We need to start knowing from now, that, as you said earlier on, it was a four, at four weeks, it was a commitment to have a review. If the numbers are so drastic that we're not going to be reopened, then people should come clean and say that.
Will the government come clean or is it afraid to do so in case there will be a public backlash? Well, we can't anticipate what way the numbers will go. I mean, the numbers will be what they are. They are 360. There was a, a hope that they would actually be lower at this stage because of moving from a level 3 to a level 5 Surely a number of weeks ago. you have to anticipate. If you have a suppression they did strategy, a, but they did then anticipate, you must have an exit but, strategy, surely. But, Matt, there was an anticipation that they would be lower by now. There was an expectation that that would be the but case. But then that would suggest so, if they're not lower, you're not going to come out of the restrictions. Well, we still have two weeks to go before uh, the, the end of the month. So there's an opportunity for everybody uh, to ensure that they comply with the public health advice. And, you know, if we can get to numbers that would allow a, a, a reasonable opening up for Christmas, well, then that's what we should be doing. OK, our thanks to Danny McCoy for joining us. Billy Callagher is staying with us because after the break, the Taoiseach was called out today for blocking the Justice Minister taking Doyle questions over the Seamus Wolfe appointment to the Supreme Court. And also there's a teachers' union which has called for schools to wrap up early for Christmas. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Billy Callagher, the Feed of Fall MEP, is still with us. And we're joined now by Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly. And also via Skype by Dr Laura Cahillan, law lecturer at the University of Limerick. And I want to ask you about this continuing controversy not just now about Seamus Wolfe's refusal to resign from the Supreme Court, but more now about the circumstances in which he was appointed in the first place. And today we had a situation whereby the government wasn't allowing the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, answer questions about the circumstances of his appointment. Why wouldn't they? Well, the impression being given by the government at the moment seems to be that the separation of powers constitutes some sort of gagging order preventing them from discussing anything to do with the judiciary at all. But in reality, the separation of powers is intended to act as a check and a balance to make sure that the other bodies are exercising their constitutional power properly. So if there's any question mark over the appropriateness of the procedures which have led to the appointment of a judge, that means that the doll is entitled to ask questions and the government is required to be accountable to the doll. So actually, if the public has been left with the impression that uh, a judge has been appointed for any reason other than merit, that's actually much more damaging to the idea of judicial independence. So really, the government should be answering questions on this matter. So just to be absolutely clear, there's absolutely no legal reason why the minister shouldn't be required to answer questions in the doll. 
That's right. There is no reason. And the Count Corilla said this yesterday as well. As long as any debate sticks to the procedures and doesn't get into personal matters, there is no reason at all why the government should not be called to answer for what exactly has gone on here. So how would you suggest it should be done? Well, either the Minister for Justice uh, should answer questions but actually, you would feel sorry for Helen McEntee being put in this position because when you look at the timeline around all of this, it sounds quite likely that this decision was taken long before she was given this portfolio. So it may be necessary actually for somebody like the Thánaiste, who was more likely to be involved in this issue from the very beginning, to answer questions, to explain exactly what has gone on and exactly how Mr Justice Seamus Wolfe uh, got to be appointed in this position in the first place. And do we need a new system for future appointments of judges in the Supreme Court and elsewhere to give a degree of transparency and to give the public confidence that these aren't jobs for the boys? Certainly, that is definitely something that is badly needed. There are a number of issues in relation to the judicial appointments process, not just in relation to what happens when uh, a name goes forward to Cabinet, but even earlier than that in terms of assessing candidates, in terms of the eligibility requirements for a judge, the fact that potential candidates aren't even interviewed. There are a, a number of issues that need to be dealt with on this. And so it, it's heartening to hear that the government is intending to look at this issue again. But hopefully this time we'll see less opposition to the issue and we will actually see an act coming in to reform this process. Stay with us, Laura. Billy Callagher, clearly from what we're just hearing there, there is no legal basis to actually stop much needed discussion about this appointment in the Doyle. So why is the government blocking it? Is it for nakedly political reasons? Well, I mean, any cursory look at the Constitution would, uh, would say that uh, the government is always accountable to the Doyle. So, I mean, um, Helen McEntee uh, can be uh, asked questions on this particular issue. I see no reason why. But there is another issue, of course. I mean, the government under the Constitution is also entitled to appoint Supreme Court judges. So, I mean, like, uh, they did make that decision. They appointed uh, Seamus Wolfe to the Supreme Court. He is now a Supreme Court judge. Are the you confident that Fianna Fáil ministers and the Taoiseach had full information at the time? Because you were relying on the minister coming mm. forward and saying, this is what the Judicial Appointments Advisory Body says. But you weren't told. Now, your Taoiseach wasn't told and Fianna Fáil mm. wasn't told that there were other judges had expressed an interest in the promotion. Well, from what I can gather, when a, a name comes to the Cabinet for uh, consideration, it is only one name. You don't bring all the names uh, in a list and say, well, so-and-so applied, but it wasn't qualified, and uh, X was You bring the one name to Cabinet for approval. You don't bring all the names and start a roundabout discussion. Well, sorry, I would go back to Laura on this, because is that necessarily the case? Isn't there also a provision whereby the name comes from the Judicial Appointments Advisory Board, but the government should also be told of other names of judges who who actually have expressed an interest. That's exactly right. And that is another of the problems in relation to the current process, because it means there are actually parallel processes ongoing. So if a candidate from outside the judiciary wishes to apply for a position, they apply through JAB. But if sitting judges wish to apply for a vacancy, they will write to the Attorney General um, and the name is then sent on to the Minister for Justice. So when the Cabinet is considering the appointment of a judge, they need to consider names taken from both processes. So both the names sent for by JAB and also the name sent forward through the Attorney General and through the Department of Justice. Um, and obviously an overall assessment is supposed to be made at that stage. But possibly that didn't happen in this case and that's why we need answers as to why. Louise, aren't we entitled to ask if the Attorney General 
who was Seamus Wolfe at the time, knew of these people who wanted the job he ended up getting. Of course, um, and we are entitled to answer questions. And, you know, the the government and the Michal Martin and uh, all of them, can they can try and deflect this all they like, but the issue is not going away because the questions that we have need to be answered. There isn't any constitutional nor legal reason other, uh, to, to prevent this debate from happening or to prevent the minister or indeed the Taunashtiff from coming into the Dáil to answer questions. So we know that there were four names under consideration. We're going to have to assume uh, that Minister McEntee didn't just pick the name out of a hat and Seamus Wolfe, the Fine Gael activist, just happens to be really lucky. Uh, so we assume that some sort of process was involved. So we are entitled to ask Minister Mr. McEntee, what that process and was. We're and we're not alleging how... that there was a process that was in any way interfered with. We no. just want the transparency as to no, what was involved no, in the no, process. No, 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 no. And, and that, that's the point. And, you know, but we won't, we won't get... Just, just hold, there, hold there for a moment, please. We won't get deflected down the road of, you know, that, 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 that this is anything other than the opposition, as we are entitled to do, as Micheál Martin did when he was in opposition in the last all, asking questions, because we need to know what process was used by which one name came and only one name, and that name went to Cabinet. So nobody is saying that uh, that there was anything wrong in the process. We're simply saying we want to have some transparency. It is not right that the process would not be transparent. We are entitled to ask those questions. And the simple fact is, Matt and Billy and, and his colleagues in the government need to understand this is not going to go away. Those questions need to be answered. The Minister should come in front of the doll and answer those questions. We need to know there were four names. And as I've said, it would be a, a huge question. Speaking at committee yesterday enough for you, no? There was no questions and answers. It was merely a very brief statement and it won't be batted away and it won't be deflected by calls from the government that this is anything other than the opposition doing exactly what Fianna Fáil did when they were in opposition, which is asking questions as we are entitled and not just entitled, but I would say duty-bound to do. But Louise, you're not being denied the opportunity to ask questions. There, uh, the Minister appears at, at committee. Uh, there's parliamentary questions week in, week out. Uh, every member of Dáil is entitled to put down a question to the minister and ask questions of the minister. Billy, so, don't be silly. No, no, come no, on no, let's now. be honest. Come on now. No, 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 I'm not let's being, be very, I'm very not, clear now. And don't, don't be trying try to be about a very serious issue. Not, the fact of the matter is there is several ways of asking questions of so a minister. So we've asked for one of them, OK? Uh, yes. Which is, just bear with me, which is that the minister would come into the doll and that she would have uh, statements and questions and answers. It's a fairly standard procedure and Billy will know this. Um, and of course we have questions and of course we have oral questions and of course we have committees. Yes. But as we saw yesterday, as we saw yesterday, that the questions were not asked at the committee because they couldn't be. A brief statement was made. So as is standard in matters like this, we request that the minister comes in and that she gives us her statement. We have an opportunity to make a statement and we have a questions and answers session. And have you tabled questions so to the Minister know, for Justice? Have you actually tabled questions to the Minister? Yes, well, you might Answers there. Fire for a moment. You we know that there. this is a fairly standard practice. What we don't know is why. Uh, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party are so intent on blocking this. Okay. Why they fear the questions being asked. We just want some transparency and some answers. That shouldn't be too much okay, to I ask. want to talk to you about the Children's Hospital in a moment, but a last question on this to you, Laura. Is this a problem every country has when it comes to the appointment of judges that it either becomes very political or it's hidden or it's jobs for the well-connected? To be honest, we're lagging pretty far behind on this issue in Ireland. And it has been flagged for a number of years now that this is reformed 
needed. There was a consultation process began in 2014 and a number of bodies made submissions to the Department of Justice, including the judges themselves, around the issues that need to be addressed here. So really this is a long time coming and this is something that needs to be dealt with now. Dr Laura Cahalan, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Louise, let's talk now about the issue of the National Children's Hospital because a bit of a shocker today to discover that this thing now is running another year behind schedule and potentially because of a row with the main contractor costing another couple of hundred million extra. What's going on? 2.4 billion, uh, I think, is the figure that was talked about at the Health Committee today. And I know my colleague David Cullinan was asking those questions. Uh, we know that every day that there is a delay, that that costs money. Uh, and, and Billy and I, I think we're on the Health Committee together when uh, when we would have started looking into this. Um, and I think he was as shocked as I would have been to see uh, the manner in which this was dealt with. So what we have is a whole tiered series of committees uh, and subcommittees and subgroups. Um, but what we don't have is an awful lot of accountability. I mean, ultimately, the book stops with the Minister for Health, as, as Billy would have said when he was the opposition health spokesperson, as I said myself. So, you know, we need to, to know, A, that the project is going to be built. I mean, the children absolutely need their hospital. We know that Temple Street is on its knees. We know that Crumlin is no longer fit for purpose. And we know that we absolutely desperately need this hospital to be built. But we are building, uh, or the government is, is presiding over the building of what is potentially the most expensive hospital in the world. We need the hospital, but we also need the costs reined in. Now, I know uh, when he was in opposition, Stephen Donnelly had some great plans about uh, bringing in more management consultants. I would say maybe management consultants have got us where we are today. Um, but we don't see that there is any sense of urgency in relation to reining in the cost of this project, which has gone from 700 million when Leo Varadkar was the Minister for Health and we're now uh, looking at 2.4 billion. That's an astronomical amount of money. Billy, we don't want to prejudge the outcome of any high court proceedings between the state and the main contractor, BAM, but how serious is it that we have a situation where they're at loggerheads? It's extremely serious. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, you're, you're, we're halfway there. Um, there's a substantial amount of work done. Uh, we're a year behind schedule. Prices are escalating. There's no doubt that the, we don't have the capacity in the state, in my view, to draw up large-scale contracts that are watertight. Um, Why not? We've had experience of building the roads all around the country. Are not as roads around, are not as complex, they? Matt, as hospitals, being truthful. I mean, roads are fairly standard. Uh, but this project was very, very complex. And I can remember asking questions along with Louise. Even when they were drawing up the plans, we still were not able to find out whether they were including first fix and second fix on ele electrics and, uh, you know, all of these things. So the, it was the, quite... The in well, my view, it was quite another, chaotic yeah. from the word go. Uh, now, it, there was a nice uh, sheen put on it, but underneath it, I always felt that there was concerns about the contractual arrangements, uh, not with the contractor per se at the time, but in advance of that, even through the architectural drawings, asking questions as opposed to, you know, what was being costed, uh, they weren't able to tell us. Even when I asked questions, and Louise and others asked questions about what is going to be in the hospital, has it been included in the overall cost, they were unable to tell us. Well, I've a lengthy statement here from BAM, which would take me about five minutes if I was to read it out on air, which I can't. But it does say that it and its subcontractors are fully committed to delivering this vital piece I'm of national sure infrastructure are. as quickly and as efficiently as possible. I'm quite sure they yeah, are well, committed. It's, it's, yes. good, it's news that they're going to do that now. But I mean, all of the evidence points to the fact that the Minister for Health really does need to get on top of this project. He needs to do the sort of stuff he said he was going to do when he was in opposition. He needs to do that now. I don't think we need more management consultants. And dear Lord, we do 
not need another report, but we do need that hospital built and we do need them to rein in the cost of it. OK, we'll leave it there on that. The panel is staying with us because after the break, the Teachers Union of Ireland has said it wants schools to close a couple of days early for Christmas as a morale boost and to give people time to isolate before Christmas. But what about the rest of the country? ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome back. Now, the panel is still with us, but we're also joined via Skype by the General Secretary of the Teachers Union of Ireland, Michael Gillespie. Tell us, Michael, about this idea that you and your members have about maybe... The school's not opening on the Monday and Tuesday of Christmas week, finishing instead the previous Friday, the 18th of December. Why? Yeah, I mean, we had been asked by our members that we should seriously consider this, that it, had a, it was an idea that merited consideration for several reasons. I suppose teachers, principals and teachers returned last August and stripped out classrooms so that we could maintain physical distancing. They came back and they had to adapt all their teaching in this new environment. Um, and so had to adapt the way they've been teaching for years so that they could keep uh, the schools open. Uh, during the midterm break, uh, uh, teachers had to return to strip out the sanitizers and change the PPE. So there's been a huge effort and commitment uh, over uh, the last several months to keep schools open. And, uh, teachers, parents and students have done this. They've successfully maintained the physical distancing, wore masks every day. And what we're being told is this is very intense, it's very tiring, it's fatiguing, um, and that it's beginning to show. Our members uh, are fatigued because of it. It's, it's very unusual. But schools have successfully done it. In other jurisdictions, schools have managed to close down, whereas we started from a position with the highest class size in Europe, and have managed to maintain schools, keep kept them opened. Um, by missing the Monday and the Tuesday, it's a small price. We gain four days. That gives a, a longer uh, run in, I suppose, to, to, to Christmas. And, uh, you know, it brings the 14 days up to New Year's Day. Um, so there, there's, lot, there's certain advantages to it. And as I said, our members had asked us that it, was, it merited consideration. And that's all we'd asked for, that it be merited and, cons and considered. Um, given the circumstances and the work that was going on Michael, in schools. We appreciate, all parents appreciate, that schools are not there to perform childminding duties. But there are many people who will be down to work on those particular days who might suddenly be faced with an unexpected childminding issue. Is that not something that needs to be taken into consideration as well? Yeah. Obviously, that's a difficult situation, and, and there must be considerations made of that. Um, I'm representing post-primary schools uh, teachers, 
And I suppose there's been an awful lot of disruption in terms of childminding in these schools and teachers, our parents as well. I mean, close contacts, um, if, if, if someone in a school is identified as a close contact, they're out of school for 14 days and that creates childminding issues and, and care issues at home. We have an awful lot of high-risk people in schools who are very anxious and worried about these situations. So this has been an ongoing uh, part of, the, of the, the school environment for the last couple of months. And this has added to the anxiety and the intenseness of the situation and the fatigue um, that has led for, for, this, for us to ask but for this Michael, to be considered. Michael, what would you say to people in other jobs who are highly fatigued as well, such as people working in health services on the front line, people who've been working in shops when other people have been able to work from home? Yet yeah, all walks of life have been affected by COVID-19. It's been difficult for everybody. Um, I'm, I'm just here saying that there's an opportunity here for schools because of the Monday and the Tuesday. Um, they're, they're not heavy education days. Uh, in fact, the Tuesday traditionally would have been a day where we would have had uh, the school show, the talent competition. There was some sort of community activity. Unfortunately, this year, because of COVID, none of that activities will be able to run as we know it. And, you know, that's going to be sad for schools that that kind of hidden curriculum and extra benefits that normally would run on that day won't run. And in a way, that day maybe because none of that can run, it will be a reminder of how difficult things are. Stay with us, Michael. Um, Billy Kelleher, the Taoiseach, is a former teacher himself. Uh, he seems to be softening a little bit on this tonight compared to the position been taken by the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, yesterday. Do you think, is this idea a runner? Well, I didn't hear what uh, the Taoiseach said tonight, but look, from the point of view of what has happened over the last number of months, teachers have done a wonderful job. Uh, they are frontline workers at this stage in the context of the fight against COVID. They're in there every day in, in uh, tight conditions in front of classes, uh, performing their duties. The difficulty, of course, is once you start unwinding days like this, uh, it discommodes the entire society. I mean, there's fam there are families who would have assumed that they would be able to work for a number of hours, that they wouldn't be obligated to rush home to, to mind uh, children uh, at, at those particular times. So it is uh, very difficult just to change uh, hours and days of school when people have planned their lives assuming that they would be in school on those two days. Please, what's the Sinn Féin position on this? I think that uh, learners have already missed out on an awful lot of school. I think it would be unwise to... to, to to ensure that they miss out on more days unless it was for public health reasons, you know. But I think we also need to recognise that schools, while they are sites of learning and that's, and that's very, very important and indeed their primary function, they are workplaces as well. So I do think a lot can be done to make them safer. I think there needs to be much more engagement with the, with the representatives. Isn't it also the case that from a public health point of view, the schools have done remarkably well in not spreading the disease? In fact, you could say that it's better to have the children in school than perhaps been out hanging around the street corners with each other, that it imposes a certain amount of discipline that would be lost if they're off, not just those two days, but effectively gone on their holidays the previous Friday. Well, I know from talking to teachers, my my own sister is a, is a principal and they would tell you that it is extremely important for uh, for children to be in school, for young adults and children to be in school, that not only does it give them a bit of structure, but it also means, you know, like they missed a lot of school. Let's not forget that. They missed a lot of school this year. They have, they have making up that they have to do, but also it does provide that structure. We need to know, though, 
that schools are safe and we need to ensure that every measure possible is taken to, to make sure that our schools are as safe as they can be. And we also need to see the stats and we need to see the evidence published in relation to infection. So I know everybody says there's no, you know, that schools are the safest place in the world and that, and that might be true, but we do need to see those statistics. We need to see them collated and published. And I think that would be important as well. And we see in other jurisdictions where schools are among the first to close. I'm glad that we're not doing that because I do think we need to prioritise the learning and the structure. And, you know, kids missed out on an awful lot when they weren't in school, not just the socialising, but for a lot of children, let's not forget, school is where they get a hot meal, school is where they get a bit of comfort, school is where they get structure. And that is extremely important. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that, nor indeed should we lose sight of the fact that teachers are, you know, as was pointed out, they are on the front line of this. Billy, something else that did come up very much as well, listeners to my radio show today, we were very annoyed if they worked in other jobs saying, well, what about us? Is there a danger that whatever sympathy we might have for the legitimate calls from teachers, that nurses and others will say, well, hang on a second, what about us? Look, I mean, many people have kept uh, the economy and society going during lockdowns. I mean, we have people every day of the week at tills in, in, in supermarkets across the country. We have people driving buses. We have people driving public transport vehicles. You know, people are going to work. The essential services are being run. So they're all frontline workers in many many ways, and they are putting themselves on the line in terms of risk to infection uh, for, for, for that duty. So the, the idea that we could put one grouping on top uh, in front of the other, uh, I think, would be a, a dangerous precedent. The advice should be based on public health. Uh, schools, by and large, are not uh, places where COVID-19 is transferred rapidly. There has been a number of outbreaks and clusters. They're identified very quickly and dealt with quickly. Uh, but in fairness, schools have done a tremendous job. Michael, would you accept that for all the legitimate concerns that were been expressed by the teachers' unions about having adequate PPE and safety for employees in schools, that everything has gone fairly well since the schools returned at the start of September, that the amount of illness in the schools has been, thankfully, very low? Yes, but that's due to the commitment of our members. I mean, we're keeping, we, we as I said earlier, we stripped out all the classrooms. We're maintaining physical distancing in schools. People are wearing masks all day, and that's difficult. You know, it's hard to teach wearing a mask. It's also hard to learn uh, wearing a mask. And schools are very, very different places than the schools we left last March. I mean, most schools were open till nine o'clock tonight because the class of 2020 were doing their leaving cert. And that leaving cert is going to go on every night uh, and every Saturday and Sunday till the 11th of December. So, you know, schools are doing things that they never did before. Now, those schools have to be cleaned and turned around for tomorrow morning, uh, you know, to make sure we can keep, uh, you know, keep with the public health advice and the cleaning regimes. So schools are definitely working way above and beyond. And the reason we have low clusters, I mean, and they've gone down even in the last two weeks, and we are getting access to those statistics now since the midterm break. You know, the numbers are going down, and but they have been kept out of the schools by the work of teachers, the cooperation of parents, and the commitment of students, because students are taking it seriously in the post-primary sector. But it is difficult. It's difficult to wear a mask all day. It's very intense. And all the interactions that are so important in school, uh, you know, the body language, trying to give support, 
is hard to do with a mask on, and well-being is very important. You know, this is the class of 2021 now coming up for their leaving service. Okay. We saw how difficult it was for the class of 20. We need to support them. And we're just saying that this was something worth considering. OK, Michael, thank you very much for that. Having listened to all of that, Billy, what do you think the government will do? Because, you know, rumours go flying around the place, particularly on things like this. Don't they need to be nailed down? I'd hate to spread a rumour on um, your programme tonight, Matt, so I'll wait for the government to make that decision. What do you think, Louise? Well, it's not new. Michal Martin says one thing, one of the ministers says another. Mixed messages. I think uh, the government do need to move to clarify this for parents, for teachers and indeed for learners. Because this is what all the students are going to be talking about tomorrow. This is what's going to be talked about oh, at the school uh, Matt, gate this parents. is what the parents are going to be talking about tomorrow. You can mark my words and they need that clarity. OK, thank you. That's all we have time for tonight. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon and then back here tomorrow night at the slightly later time of 20 past 10, right after I'm a celebrity. Thanks for watching and a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.